If you have your Bibles, let me invite you this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, where in just a moment we'll read. This morning we are concluding a series of sermons, a number of weeks, on what has been the philosophy of ministry, or a philosophy of ministry. And if you're visiting with us this morning, or if you're a new visitor to GPC, um, it may feel a little bizarre, uh, this series on a philosophy of ministry. Uh, Normally, this would have been done as soon as a, a new pastor began. But you may recall that it was one week after uh, I was elected pastor that COVID shut everything down. And we spent two years together outdoors and in the gym and kind of trying to find a starting point when we could be in person. And so now, two years in, we are considering subjects that I hope are very vision casting for us. My intent is that these would have us co-laboring together, working off the same page, very idealistic sounding, I know. Uh, But I think there's wisdom in trying to communicate some big picture items and to define our terms. So this morning, as strange as it may sound, this morning we're going to conclude with four final cultural values, ministry cultural values. And the way that I'm going to get there is a little different, and it's a little bizarre. So if you'll just trust me for just a few minutes, I hope that this will make sense. When making plans for the future and casting vision for the future, particularly of a church and a ministry like GPC, uh, the book of James offers us real practical wisdom and a healthy mindset for us as we conclude this series, and as we now begin a process of making plans for the future, thinking intentionally as we move into the future. And the book of James is going to give us some sobering words for those of us who like to do so much planning. I may have missaid the text a moment ago, but it's James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Give your attention to God's Word. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead... You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing of His Word. Lord, would You now take Your Word and put it to work in each of us, through our ears, into our minds, down into our hearts, and through our hands. And we ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may have heard something like this before. There are four kinds of people. Underplanners, planners, overplanners, and control freaks. 
you know, which one are you? I am kind of finding out which one I am. Uh, I like a good plan. I can overplan. I can be a control freak. Uh, don't do a lot of underplanning except for in a few categories of my life. And you're going to be somewhere in the midst of all that yourself. Some of you love a good plan. Some of you don't. You don't like structure. Uh, others of you obsessive about, con- about structure. Such is the nature of the human being. We're, we're all different. So this morning, this sermon is kind of a playful pushback on everything that I've said for the last X number of weeks. It's a, re- it's a sobering reminder to us all. It is good to have a plan, but unless the Lord wills, plans count for nothing, right? I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everyone has a game plan until they get punched in the face, right? Same thing can be true in ministry as well. So this morning, uh, towards a healthy mindset of having a ministry plan and having a plan for your life, as Christians, we want to have a healthy plan, but we want to be sobered with truth and with the wisdom that God's word would give us. So, four points this morning. And the one who spoke in my ear this week uh, as I did my studying, I had two voices. One was Sinclair Ferguson, uh, and the other was Dr. Eric Alexander. Both of those are Scottish pastors, Scottish voices in my ear as I'm listening and reading things. I'm not going to speak with any accent other than the southern one that I have this morning. Um, But I'll be quoting from them uh, in much of what I say here. The first thing is this. What James in the wisdom of chapter 4 and verse 13 teaches us, that we must remember as Christians living life every day, is the unpredictable nature of life. It is unpredictable. And you and I can fall falsely into a sense of confidence of thinking we can plan and predict the future. Eric Alexander said this. He said, that passage reminds us of our ignorance. We don't know anything about tomorrow. We think that we know something about tomorrow. And so in all of our planning of life, even planning of ministry, we have to be sober-minded We are largely flying in ignorance, in our own human ignorance. Verse 13 says, you don't know. That's ignorance. You don't know the future. Think of the events just in the news in the last few weeks, in the last few days. In Kentucky, they've been overwhelmed with water, with floods. I think 30 people have been killed by water. In Las Vegas, they have been overwhelmed with water. Yet in Texas and in Mexico, there's not enough water. I saw a report, I forget the town in Texas, but they are warning the citizens, our towers are running out of water. So who knew that was coming? Who had control over that? In one place, you have an overabundance of water. In another place, you have the absence of water. And that is a sobering reminder that we we are not in control. We are not in control. We cannot control these kinds of things. The Scriptures say we should not assume anything about today or tomorrow, about this or about that. 
And that's just a good humbling reminder for all of us. There is no promise about today or tomorrow, about this or that, except for the Lord reigns. And that's all the promise that we need. The Lord's reign in His will will be done. James goes on to say about that planning for tomorrow, he says, now listen, which is an admonishing term. The language there is the language of pay attention, rise out of your slumber, listen up. That's what James is saying. He says, now listen, you who say this, you who think you can plan today or tomorrow and do this or that. Here, James is admonishing what sounds like a great business model and business practice which is to have a plan, go execute it. It's a year-long plan. It's going to result in profit. And James, like Jesus in Luke chapter 12, is reminding us that the wise Christian life is not driven by such pursuits. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 said this, Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And so he said, this is what I'll do. Here's his planning. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool." This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Jesus is not anti-business or anti-planning. James is not anti-business or anti-planning. But they're saying, keep things in proper perspective. Seek the Lord and His will and His kingdom. And all the other things will be added to you. Paul ran into this personally in his ministry where we're reminded that that pursuit of profit, that love of this world and the possessions of the world, it will ruin and undo people. It will wash at the foundation of Christian faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul speaks of Demas. Do you remember Demas? Of Demas it said, Because he loved this world, he has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. He's referenced elsewhere as being a faithful companion to Paul. But Paul says he fell in love with the world and he walked away from it all. And so we should be sober-minded about our planning, about our profiteering, that in all things, life is unpredictable, and our faith and trust are in God and God alone and in trusting His Word. Number two, we need to remember the brevity and the fragility of life. Life is short. It's unpredictable, and it's short. Eric Alexander refers to it as our transience. So we have an ignorance problem, 
And then we have a transience, a a short-lived, uncertain experience. Psalm 39, verses 4 to 7 say this very thing. Listen to to the psalm writer in Psalm 39. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in You. Do you hear that? Admonitions in in the Psalms that God's people, we want stuff, we want to hold on to it, but life is short, and who winds up with our possessions after all? So Old Testament and New, God's people have been tempered and sobered to remember life is short, it's fragile, and our emphasis and priorities need to be where they matter most. Because in the end, like we sing in a hymn, We are all frail flowers, subject to wind, subject to the burning heat of the day. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. You know that hymn. We didn't sing it today, but we could have. Frail as summer's flower, we flourish, blows the wind, and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. And there's that tension again, our groaning in the flesh, but our having a confident hope that God is eternal. His promises are eternal. Life is brief. Life is fragile. And we need not forget that. Some of you maybe know the poem, The Dash. I thought of it this week. I remember reading this to students years ago. It's a poem by Linda Ellis. came out in 1996. If you haven't heard it, it's a real... It's, it's, a, it's a great poem, and I'm not much of a poetry guy. But listen to this. It's called The Dash, which is referencing the dash between one's birth date and their death date. And it says this. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth, and now only those who loved them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash, What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. And are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash. 
There's wisdom in that. Being sober-minded about how we are living, why we are living, what we are doing, and whether or not we are being propelled by wisdom, by God's wisdom, because life is short, and we will give an account for it. Thirdly, the will of God for our life. Verse 15, the will of God for our life. Eric Alexander says this reminds us of our dependence. That by faith in Christ, we are dependent upon the will of God for our life. Not our own personal will, not our preferences, but the death of our preferences for the sake of God's will. And that's what oftentimes disappoints us temporarily in this life when we realize that God is calling us to put our preferences to death for the sake of His will. But this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says, but it's also what he models. Here's a wonderful example of the Apostle Paul practicing what he preaches. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. How Paul demonstrates in all of his talk about God's will, he will model and demonstrate what that looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. He says, But I will come to you very soon, if it is the Lord's will. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, he says, For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul's practicing what he preaches. In all things, you and I should see that if the Lord wills, this will move on. This will come to pass. But if the Lord does not will, we bow our preferences, we bow our desires, we bend our knee to His will. That's how Christians are to think and to live. The four hardest words to pray, yet the four best words to pray are what? Thy will be done. Those are hard words for us to pray when we really want something. But they're the four best words a Christian can ever pray. I don't know if you know the hymn writer Charlotte Elliott. Uh, I learned of her this week in thinking about those words, Thy will be done. She wrote a hymn called Thy will be done. She's also the hymn writer uh, who wrote the Just As I Am hymn, the Billy Graham made famous hymn, Just As I Am. But I want you to hear some of the lyrics of her hymn, Thy will be done, as I seek to encourage myself and you to make that a routine prayer language for all of us. But before I read those lyrics, listen to what's true of Charlotte Elliott. So she was born in 1789 in England. She lived until 1871. She was the granddaughter of a minister who was a companion to John Wesley. So that's the context and the era. She was one of four siblings, and two of her sisters died disappointingly, at a very young age. So she lived through the hurt of losing her young sisters. Then even more interesting, when she was 30 years old, she became an invalid. And she would remain an invalid for the rest of her life 
which would be another 52 years. She spent 52 years as an invalid. What did she do in that time? She became a hymn writer. She wrote more than 150 hymns. One of her hymn books was titled, The Invalid's Hymn Book. And one of her hymns is, Thy Will Be Done. So with that sense of hurt and loss that she had in her life, 52 years spent as an invalid, with great disappointment of not knowing the things that she thought and her plans would come to be, listen to some of these stanzas of that hymn, Thy Will Be Done. My God and Father, while I stray far from my home in life's rough way, oh, teach me from my heart to say, Thy will be done. Though dark my path and sad my lot, let me be still and murmur not, but breathe the prayer divinely taught, Thy will be done. What though in lonely grief I sigh, for friends beloved no longer nigh, submissive still would I reply, Thy will be done. And if thou shouldst call me to resign, what most I prize, it ne'er was mine. I only yield thee what was thine, thy will be done. Should pining sickness waste away, my life in premature decay, my father, still I strive to say, thy will be done. Then when on earth I breathe no more, the prayer oft mixed with tears before, I'll sing upon a happier shore. Thy will be done. There is wisdom at a young age or an old age to remember that we are always praying, Thy will be done. May our preferences be put to death, our personal preferences, for the sake of God's will. May God's will become our will as our wills bend and conform to His. Then fourthly and lastly and briefly, the fourth thing James warns us of is the boastful pride of life in verse 16. What Eric Alexander calls our human arrogance. The boastful pride of life is our arrogance. It is the myth of our self-sufficiency. That is our arrogance. That we think, and our culture says, I got this. Right? I got this. I can do this. That's the boastful pride of life that James and his wisdom seek to demolish. That we would say, God's will be done, not my will be done. I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what today brings. I don't know this. I don't know that. But God's will be done. I am not self-sufficient. I do not have this. Rather, I trust God and trust His Word. I read an article this week uh, by a friend of mine, actually, who wrote in the Gospel Coalition on the life of John Stott. Some of you will know that name as a biblical scholar, uh, now deceased, but who made many great contributions for the good of the Christian church and for 
missions in foreign countries. And the point of the article that my friend wrote was to show the tension in the world that we live between materialism, all of the stuff that we have, the things that we enjoy, between materialism and living a simple Christian life. That we can fall prey to the materialistic nature of our world and start loving things and wanting things too much. And so he wrote this little article uh, on John Stott and the simplicity of his life. And he said three things that I thought, these are good things for us to, to meditate on at the end of our sermon today. And, and there were three applications that said this. We want to seek biblical simplicity in our Christian lives. We want to have intentional simplicity in our Christian lives. And we should experience sacrificial simplicity in our Christian lives. We should be biblical, intentional, and be willing to be sacrificial. He said those are the three things that summarized his study and experience of John Stott. His aspiration for a simple Christian life that could escape the materialism of this world. And of that materialism, John Stott said this in his book, The Radical Disciple. He said, materialism, a preoccupation with material things, can smother our spiritual life. Jesus told us not to store up treasure on earth and warned us against covetousness. So did the Apostle Paul, urging us instead to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, of generosity, and of contentment drawing on his own experience of having learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And then to bring this to a, a close for the book of James, what John Stott would do in his life uh, in modeling an effort towards simplicity, that in all of the books that John Stott would write, in all of his provisions to the church, he forfeited all of his royalties he never took any of them. He put them aside and he used those and they are being used now. I have another friend, another friend who has a job because of those royalties within the PCA. But he took those royalties to produce books, scholarships, to produce scholars, to write things to benefit the church and to advance missions and ministry in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. Because one man said, I'm going to use my gifts to live simplicity with, with simplicity. He didn't live in a nice house. He lived in a simple flat. It says that he wore the same coat, same blue blazer for decades. Had one pair of shoes. Because his life could be simple and he could find his contentment in knowing that the church would be healthier and better through the small sacrifices that He made. That's a beautiful thing for us to be reminded of in a world that is so materialistic. But God's calling us to live simple, faithful lives and to not get swept up and consumed with our own plans or with all the materials in our culture around us. So now what? Four final cultural values. I told you I was getting there a weird way. But James and his call to live a faithful, simple life, that would help me define 
these last four simple cultural values. Number one, the cultural ministry values, the kind of culture we would want to have and share in together. So we want to be intentional in ministry, not incidental, not accidental. We don't want to have uncalculated efforts. We want to think through things. Now that is not contesting with what James has said about planning for the future. James is not opposed to a good plan. James is opposed to thinking we can control the future. But we do. We want to be intentional in everything that we do. We don't want to just wind up somewhere accidentally or incidentally. When we do something, we want it to be calculated, reasonable, and faithful. We don't want to be over-planners, but we don't want to be under-planners. Amen? And number six, we want to be Reformed and Presbyterian. But we don't want to be obnoxious, prideful, or arrogant about it. Amen? Now there's a difference. I've seen a lot of the one and not a whole lot of the other. But we are Presbyterian. We are Reformed. That is our identity of who we are and what we believe. And we want to be those things. But we don't want to be obnoxious about it, prideful in it, and arrogant. There are plenty of other churches that do that. Let's just not be one of them. Amen? Number seven. We want to have a fixed theology. And we do have a fixed theology. It's determined, it's expressed, it's in writing, it's agreed upon. But we want to have a flexible methodology, which means there's not just one way to do something. We ought to be creative, thoughtful, and faithful in executing the best possible ministry that we can execute that God has given us. Always reflecting on what we're doing. Never just doing it because we've always done it but always saying, hey, wait a minute, is there a more faithful way? Is there there a better way to do this to produce more fruit? So a fixed theology, our theology is not up for debate, but a flexible methodology. Some of you will have great ideas, and we need to hear them. And we're flexible in how we execute our methods of ministry. And then eighthly, we want to emphasize meaningful worship. When we worship the Lord, we want it to be meaningful. We want it to be understood. We don't want to just do things. We want to do faithful things. We want them to make sense. And we want our children growing up seeing what faithful worship looks like. Sinclair Ferguson says, Worship in the heart is not emotional. It's theological. It's based on truth. And that doesn't mean that worship doesn't have feelings. But our priority is not to titillate feelings. It's to say true things and do what the Lord has called His church to do. So in that way, we want to have meaningful worship. And I'll give you one brief example. We didn't know we were going to do it this morning, but we did, almost on the fly. Some of you maybe noticed. Our deacons this morning... When they received the tithes and the offerings, they didn't leave the room. They didn't go count the money. They brought that forward, and we offered it up to the Lord as an offering. And we prayed for the Lord to use it. We set it apart. We 
consecrated it with prayer and devoted it to the Lord. That's meaningful, right? Old Testament and New Testament, that's how sacrifices were offered up to the Lord. That this is for you and for your glory. This is not for us. And that should be meaningful to us. That's just one small example. And so in everything we want to do, we want to be meaningful. We don't want to do it for a reason. We want it to be faithful and honoring the Lord and being beneficial. And in all these things that we've heard about for all these weeks, I would sum it up like this as I have in previous weeks. In everything we do as a ministry that the Lord has created in Greenwood, we want to be faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. If the Lord would give us such a ministry for decades more, we would be grateful. Let's pray for that. Lord, that is our humble prayer, is that You would continue to be at work doing what You've always done, calling the people to Yourself, ministering to families, and then sending them forth into the world to be salt and light. Lord, would You continue that good work at Greenwood Presbyterian Church. We've been reminded this morning, voices from decades past, that benefited from the faithfulness of this ministry decades ago, would the same be said decades from now, that you are at work, even in our little ones. And we ask it and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.